This is Schoolhouse Equity and Education. Welcome, everyone. I am Allison Brown, and I am your host. Today, we get to talk about education and Donald Trump. We have the wonderful privilege today of hearing from two education justice warriors. Albert Sykes is the executive director of IDEA, the Institute for Democratic Education in America. Albert, welcome to Schoolhouse. Thank you, Allison. And G2 Brown is the National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. Welcome, G2. Thank you, Allison. Thank you so much. So first, I should say that although we have not confirmed any relation officially, we I am claiming both Albert and D2 as my cousins mm-hmm. because D2, of course, we, we share the last same last name. Yes, ma'am. And Albert, you know, my people come from Mississippi. They migrated to Indiana. That's where I was born. Mm. I'm claiming you both as family and I'm wel- welcoming you both as family. So welcome to Schoolhouse and thank you for, for your time today. We're looking at an era that is troubling, and I want to talk about that with you both. First, why don't we talk about who you are? D2, what is the Journey for Justice Alliance? The Journey for Justice Alliance is a national network of uh, grassroots community-based organizations led by uh, black and brown people. Uh, We have about 42 organizations in 24 cities. So we're a growing network. Uh, we actually have one member in Johannesburg, mm. uh, Equal Education. So we're really excited about that. We are committed to community-driven school improvement, mm-hmm. that the solutions to what ails our schools exist in our communities. So a lot of our work is to create the space and the capacity to build power mm-hmm. to, to make change. So in, in many of our cities, there are like incredible fights going on around public education. Folks in Milwaukee defeating multi-million dollar charter school legislation and actually winning resources for sustainable community schools. Folks in Camden actually organizing, I mean, just hardcore, creating a no charter zone Mm. in Camden, New Jersey, right? And these stories don't get told, of course, by the corporate media because your oppressor does not want the oppressed to believe that they can actually change Mm. things. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work is at a very grassroots level, uh, spreading that gospel and then providing the support for our groups to really build power in many of our cities. Mm. So that's who J4J is. Uh, we have a coordinating committee made of about 10 organizations. Uh, we have several groups that have asked to become members. So I have the dream of in two years, 50 cities and three countries. Right. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. But, but that's what I'm going for. So, Albert, what is IDEA? IDEA is an organization that is about the preservation of public education. And we dedicated to telling the stories of what's happening good across the country in public schools and especially in places where education is being practiced and delivered in a democratic way. And that's involving parents, teachers, students, community leaders, and administrators as a team of folks who dedicated to delivering education from a student-centered perspective. And we also are an organization that's dedicated to having education delivered in an anti-racist and equitable way for children all across this country. And we were founded on the premise uh, that it was another story to be told. And so that's the work that we uh, have dedicated ourselves to doing since I found it. The work you all have been doing has been impactful, has been a tremendous, tremendous support for movement activity and, and has been right at the middle of that uh, movement activity, especially for 
public schools and for black and brown children in public schools. And, you know, as we look at the years to come, the next four years at least to come, Mm -hmm. certainly it's about Donald Trump who will be sworn in as the 45th president of the United States of America on January 20th. But it's much bigger than that. His campaign really awoke um, a beast that has been, Mm. you know, this country's Achilles heel and and was the actually probably birthed this nation Mm -hmm. from its origins and a beast that is really rooted in racial hatred and the myth of racial hierarchy. So I I just wonder, you know, what are you feeling? What are you thinking as education justice organizers about the next four years? Albert, why don't we why don't we start with you? I'm definitely uh, saying so, right? And and you will hear from G2 in a minute around some of the work that he and J4J are actually moving right now as we come into the confirmation hearings for the possible next Secretary of Education for the United States, and that's a place where IDEA has really put some of our focus. Uh, we had you and Jitsu and uh, Nancy on for a call a few weeks ago to talk about the state of education and education organizing during the Trump era, and we also been trying to work with different organizations around the country, and we also are supporting Jitsu in the work that he's doing, but they actually, on the ground, taking a huge, huge lead and making some strides in the community conversation around what's happening at the national level with education. Um, the feeling is that we are about to have someone confirmed to lead the public education system in this country that doesn't believe in public education. Um, it's been shown through her investments over time. It's been shown through the rhetoric and ideology that she has used her money to support and that she used her influence to support. And it's also coming on the heels of an election in which this country was encouraged and actually uh, where a candidate was successful in getting this country to embrace his worst fears and embrace his worst um, it's worse self in a lot of senses and the things that seem to be most prevalent in being able to accomplish that was the picture that was painted about different minority classes of folks in this country, so black and brown folks and how uh, less valuable we are and how less valuable our spaces are. And so the same guy who's being our education secretary couldn't talk about our kids or their schools without using the words ghetto and urban and inner city as if though all those things mean that they totally occupied by black and brown bodies. And so it's a great sense of urgency. It's definitely no fear. It's no room for fear. Um, but we can we can definitely be super concerned about our kids and their safety and what the intentions around education for our children are actually going to be for the next four years. So, I mean, it's some work to be done and definitely glad to kick it over to G2 after this because they got some beautiful work that they started and that folks should definitely hear about and be able to support. And G2, we are looking at a future that includes a Secretary of Education who, mm-hmm. as Albert said, has mm-hmm. been really pouring her own resources into privatization Mm -hmm. of the public school system. We're looking at an attorney general who has espoused racist rhetoric and Mm -hmm. policies Mm -hmm. and uh, will be confirmed. And what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And, And you are doing some really exciting work 
around those things. Well, well I appreciate that. And uh, Brother Albert, I appreciate your compliments, brother. Uh, number love. I, I think what Al said is really important. You know, you go through shock initially, you mm-hmm. know, but as black folks, we've endured Nixon. I mean, we've endured Reagan. We've endured Clinton. Uh, to some degree, we've endured the Obama administration. And we, not without work, but as Kendrick Lamar says, we're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. right? And I think we're going to be all right because it's an opportunity now to organize in communities. You know, providing social services alone is not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. We have to learn how to control the institutions that impact our day-to-day lives. Our young people have to begin to learn power, what mm-hmm. power means. Mm-hmm. Everything from how do you get a stop sign in your neighborhood to how should that police officer deal with you, right? Uh, what to do if that police officer does it? Why don't you have a grocery store in your neighborhood? Why on every corner in the hood is there a liquor store, mm-hmm. right? And begin to do that analysis with our young people and engage young people in being the masters of their communities. Mm-hmm. Engage, you know, parents and community members in doing that. I have a prediction, and my prediction is that more grassroots community-based organizations are going to start popping up, mm-hmm. right? Because people are going to be struggling. They're going to be trying to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. And our work, in my mind, J4J's work, is to be there, Right to be a resource for people, to say there are black people that know how to organize. There are black people that know how to build power. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to listen, Mm -hmm. but also be a resource to those folks. I think that also another thing I'm feeling is that this is a moment of accountability for the democratic political establishment, but also for the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. Because um, as we talked about before the broadcast, Trump election didn't just materialize, you know, out of clear air. There's been an ignoring of low and particularly low income black people Mm -hmm. in this country by traditional civil rights organizations, by labor Mm -hmm. and by the Democratic Party and definitely by the Republican Party. So and so consequently, we have a person who won the White House with less votes than Mitt Romney got in 2012. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but what that tells me is that the Democratic base did not show up. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Why? Because one thing that we know, and I don't want to go too far into the electoral piece, but people move when they're inspired to move, mm-hmm. right? And people don't show when there's nothing that inspires them to show. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to own that. Uh, we have to own the disconnection between grassroots community organizations and traditional civil rights groups. We have to own that disconnection and work to reconnect it, but reconnect it not with folks in communities with their hand out or, mm-hmm. or, or like we have to beg. But from a sense of strength, and I mentioned to you earlier that I believe that we miss the lesson of Ella Baker. Mm -hmm. We've missed it. And so for me, you know, I've reengaged in the study of her life and her lessons. What are some of the concrete lessons that Ella Baker had? One quote I'm not going to get exactly right, Mm -hmm. but one quote that I love, she says, is that strong people don't need no leaders. Mm -hmm. And I understood that to mean that we are the leaders we've been waiting for. What you need to make change is time, space, and will. Mm-hmm. So you need to create the space for people who don't have a voice to begin to process and, 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 and strategize on how they can maximize their voice. And you need the will to make that change. Mm-hmm. So people like Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, exemplified that will. People like Al Raby exemplified that will. Marion Stamps in Chicago and Cabrini Green Housing Projects. These were regular folks who 
often they didn't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of, mm-hmm. but they were believers. Mm-hmm. And because they believed, they realized that they had a right to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's all that mattered. Yeah. And I think that Ella Baker's life taught that. She used to talk about the dignity mm-hmm. of people that she met in Harlem and mm-hmm. just and how and when she organized in Mississippi, just the level of um, of uh, character mm-hmm. that people had. And she criticized many of the folks who were coming from an elitist standpoint because they think, well, you're missing this. Mm-hmm. You're missing the lessons that you can learn from folks that um, make it. And they don't have the, the necessary resources to make it. They create the resources to make it. Mm-hmm. They create the relationships to make sure that they all have the resources to make it. And so she was ostracized as a result. And another one of her quotes that I'm not going to get right mm-hmm. was that every human being, regardless of um, how much they have, or how much they don't have, have the right to analyze their conditions and organize to change their conditions. Mm-hmm. And so she was ostracized yeah. because she criticized male dominant leadership. She mm-hmm. criticized the hero worship. Mm-hmm. She criticized the lack of voice that people in grassroots communities had. She was very critical of, again, the elitist views mm-hmm. of really looking down on people in grassroots communities, even though she grew up in a family that had means, right? Mm-hmm. Her mother was very educated mm-hmm. and her father was educated, but she appreciated the fact that they believed in giving back. But she was critical as she grew up, even in her own parents' paternalistic view of how you deal mm-hmm. with folks in grassroots communities. And we miss the lessons of that ancestor. And I think that um, for me as an organizer that's been doing this for a while, it's important to always reflect and to kind of reassess how you do your work. So I'm um, struggling to be, you know, the best representation I can of somebody who that helps to create the space for grassroots power to grow. Mm-hmm. I agree with my brother Al. I'm not fearful at this time. I just think that, that we have to do some building up because mm-hmm. we don't have to grind. You know, the response that you may get from uh, police officials, mm-hmm. whereas um, they didn't feel they could crack you over the head in the open before, mm-hmm. will probably change, Yeah, right? So the type of um, coalitions and alliances that we need to build have to be more real, Yeah, right? Yeah. Which why I'm really appreciative how Al reached out to us around mm-hmm. the idea form when we're doing this. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you talked about, well, how can I help you all on How can we support you all on Wednesday? Mm-hmm. We have to build these real type of alliances. What we like, we like brothers and sisters for real, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because the other side ain't playing. That's right. And the progressive movement has to reflect on the fact that for, for a large portion of this progressive movement, we've been playing mm-hmm. at struggle. Mm-hmm. While folks who they are committed to getting rid of us in, in these communities, right? Mm-hmm. I was priced out of Bronzeville in 2005. In Chicago. In Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. The Bronzeville community in Chicago where President Barack Obama was a state senator. Same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I, when I moved in that community in 1992, I was paying $400 a month for a three-bedroom apartment. Mm. In 2005, my rent was $1,200. Mm. So I couldn't afford it. And now you look in these communities where these, these rents are skyrocketing. You also see schools closed, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens is for working and low-income families, it's almost like a house filling up with smoke. Mm-hmm. You can't breathe. Despite you working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, you're working at your security guard and then you're also selling candy. You're doing whatever you have to do to make it. Mm-hmm. You can't make it. The city is by design making it impossible for you to survive in those spaces. Mm-hmm. That's what our people are going through, right? Yeah. That calls to mind several things. And I'm, I'm thinking about mm-hmm. just 
the notion of uh, voting rights and how there's been some real, I think, disconnection from the movement for voting rights mm-hmm. where people, you know, lost their lives and, mm-hmm. and were violently murdered for mm-hmm. the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And today where there's a, a lack of attention to voting as part of a larger mm-hmm. strategy for liberation and for freedom and, mm-hmm. and voting because it's been so connected to the political establishment, which hasn't been kind mm-hmm. on either side of the aisle mm-hmm. to black and brown people, mm-hmm. that just the act of voting itself doesn't actually change things That's necessarily. Right. That's right. You know, Albert, how do you speak to voting and voting rights and civic participation as part of a larger strategy for for freedom and justice and self-sufficiency in communities. So I think voting definitely always has to be one of our tools. We found out that the toolbox has to be diversified to go beyond just the act of voting, but including organizing and other things that happen after the vote and advocacy that happens after the vote. But actually voting is something that always has to be a tool in the toolbox and it always has to be an option on the table and it always has to be something that we push, especially for young people to become involved in. I think part of what we're looking at is a country that continues to show young people that they're not important and that translates to a lot of arenas. So they feel it in the classroom. They feel it in the civic arena. They feel it in the healthcare arena. They feel it in the employment arena. And we have to have a different message to galvanize our young people who want to participate in voting. And so we saw it with this past election where it was hard for the Democrats to continue to sell what they always sold to young people. So I think they had reached a point where they had bought enough hope and change between 2008 and now. And that the message that was being put out and the things that were being sold wasn't enough to make young people hopeful enough to move in the ways politically that they've moved in the last eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it, it leveraged the power of young people in a, in a way that for the next eight years, 12 years, 20 years and beyond, like they are folks that can no longer just be handed a canned message that's been rehashed every two years for congressional elections and every four years for national elections and every four years for local elections. But they actually have to become folks that are listened to and that are valued. And so, you know, we had conversations amongst ourselves around what would it be like to lower the voting age and how much more important that would make a 16-year-old or 17-year-old today than they would have been yesterday or You know, if they had the opportunity and the right to participate in voting for their local leadership, and at some point that would help them be way more prepared to vote for their national leadership. Because I think when we talk about voting, we always look at the big picture of presidential elections and these big national elections, but we also got to push voting rights and the act of voting very, very uh, hard at the local level. So the numbers for local elections, the drop-off is so dramatic for the numbers that turn out between local and national elections that we know that people place a lot of emphasis on the national and not enough emphasis on what's happening right in the places that we are. And and that's important in a place like Mississippi. So you got a state that's essentially committed to not feeding the babies while also standing around and poking fun at the baby for being malnourished and weak as it's trying to crawl. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Mississippi 
does is for the education system. It, it won't feed the baby, but it'll poke holes in, in how the baby is crawling, and it'll make fun of the fact that the baby is weak and malnourished uh, while it's simultaneously starving the child. And so, and the folks who make those decisions are the people that we either vote for or don't vote for. Mm-hmm. And so we have to figure out uh, not only how do we increase our voter turnout, but how do the folks that we vote for actually come from us and develop their platforms and their agendas along with the folks in the community. So we got a history and a tradition in this country of hand-me-down politics where a politician comes Mm -hmm. along and tells the community what he's going to do. And now we need to have a system of politicians uh, that come from the community, that's raised by the community. They don't tell the community what he or she Mm -hmm. is going to do for us but they go with an unrelenting agenda that's crafted along with the community and they have to go in and be staunch supporters and stand on the things that the community develops and they have to be uncompromising in the things that folks say that they want and that they need for the places that they are. G2, what are some of the specific education policies you are anticipating? What do you think we should expect? I think there should be a a lot of concern about just uh, similar to race to the top, but I think on steroids, uh, Mm -hmm. federal incentives to privatize education in in our cities, Mm -hmm. aggressive legislation to minimize the number of elected school boards. And I, you know, and I, I agree with Albert about the, the power of local elections, you know, in local politics that, you know, one of the things we've seen is that in cities where our children are overwhelmingly the majority in many of these cities, we've lost the right to vote. Yeah. So you go to Boston, Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Detroit, et cetera, et cetera. You have appointed bodies Mm -hmm. that often serve the interests of the corporate entities that are actually benefiting from this. Mm -hmm. And these are the school board members. And so they, they remove these cities, remove any structures of accountability to the public. So I think we're going to see more of those type of efforts and we're going to see efforts to move vouchers mm-hmm. in, in um, many of our cities. I think Indiana is is one of those places where it's kind of taken root, yeah. despite the fact that we've got ample evidence to say that vouchers actually, you know, increase segregation mm-hmm. and things of that nature. I think you're going to see an effort because what makes sense don't make sense. Right. Yeah. So who cares that only one out of five charters outperform traditional public schools. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, if, if I was a baseball player and I was batting 200, I wouldn't get promoted to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. I may even get kicked out of the minor leagues, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the privatization movement can bat 200 and then be brought to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to see more aggressive forms of, of what the Obama administration did, and, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I would add vouchers to that list. Yeah. And that's why earlier I said, I think there are lessons that we have to learn that, that you know, I think the bar for being progressive is too low. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> it's really important. I mean, it is. I think it's really important that, you know, folks that call themselves progressive get black parents and brown parents in a room and say, don't talk about race. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. When that's the choking that's in mm-hmm. your throat, that's why you can't breathe yeah. because you're hated because of who God made you. Mm-hmm. And I think that our work is to make America look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. That's our work. Mm-hmm. And when they try to turn away, we move it. Mm-hmm. They try to turn away, we move it. Because until we deal with the America's great evil, yeah. it's like having the flu. Mm-hmm. And every time you go to the doctor, you say, well, give me something for the runny nose. Mm-hmm. So then you, you, you cure the runny nose, but then here go the earache. But you never get rid of the virus. 
And America's virus is this historic hatred of us. Yeah. And that hatred has been, it, it, it expresses itself in many ways. You know, think about this. The very people who emotionally go off on Colin Kaepernick or, or you know, scream at young people that are Black Lives Matter. Yeah actually think that they're different yeah. than the Bull Connors of the world. Yes, they actually yes. think that they're different than the people that spit at Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and hit him in the head with a brick. Mm-hmm. They, they ain't no different. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. it is is just there's more technology. Yeah, But they're the same people because there's been no accountability, so there's been no transformation. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that with hostility. Mm-hmm. So I say mm-hmm. that as a person who seeks to heal yeah. this society so my son and children like him can grow up in it. Yeah. Right? But there's been no accountability for the despicable human rights violations that have been heaped upon our people, Mm -hmm. heaped upon Native Americans, heaped upon Latino families. Mm -hmm. And since there's been, we've allowed them to repackage themselves Mm -hmm. and say that somehow we're responsible. You know, Michael Brown's body was riddled with bullets. Mm -hmm. That brother wasn't shot once. Yeah. Body was riddled with bullets and he left that brother in the middle of the street. And then effectively demonized that brother. Yeah. And America digested it mm-hmm. because it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. Inequity in public education to America is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, Ella Baker's lesson was until the killing of black children, black mother's sons is as important as the killing of white children, white mother's sons. We who believe in freedom will not rest until it comes. That's right. And the same thing with education. Mm-hmm. You know, this country accepts inequity because it's all right. To shut down school districts in rural Mississippi, black school districts, and bus black children to another dilapidated school district mm-hmm. right past the multi-million dollar white school mm-hmm. districts. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to close 50 schools in Chicago and then actually act like the exploding violence rate is not connected to that. Mm-hmm. While people on the ground know that, that that is not the case, right? Yeah. It's okay because who are we talking about anyway? Yeah. And so... This ain't about no race. Excuse my my slang or my improper English, but this is not <laughs> about this is not about a race card, mm-hmm. right? Denying racism is the race card, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, owning it is courageous. Mm-hmm. It's courageous, and and so yeah. So I, I just think that today the message that I'm hearing, people in, the, in in my community where I live and I work, people are not ready to just accept. The status quo. Mm -hmm. They're not. I mean, I come from a grassroots community organization, you know, before I became the director of Journey for Justice, which is was one of the most high poverty areas in the city of Chicago. In 1993, had the most vacant lots in in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And we got over a thousand members. And I'm not saying that to boast. I'm Mm -hmm. saying that to say that that folks believe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have to give we have to create the space. And then, then, you know, I say this all the time. Organize the little victories, no matter how little we think those little victories are, mm-hmm. to an oppressed people, to a person that's starving, right? Mm-hmm. A piece of bread is a meal, yeah. right? And so those little victories begin to train us to believe that we can win. We have to realize that we are, I don't want to use the word conquered, but I want to say we have been an assaulted people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are traumatized people. Mm-hmm. We are all afflicted by the sickness of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And we have to heal ourselves and we can't do it intellectually. It has to be a process in which we begin to retrain ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, when I became conscious and I began to work in the community, oh, I did Negro stuff all the time because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a Negro. I, I've been raised, I've been manufactured in this country. So I'm not just going to be African because I, my name becomes G2 Brown. Mm-hmm. And I have to struggle 
to begin to be some something different, to be other than what this system expected me to be mm-hmm. and have people around you to hold you accountable. So that's why I mean, we have to build a type of unity yeah. where we can check each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a saying, be hard on the issue, but compassionate on the person. Yeah. We have to begin to do that because if we don't, then, you know, it's our ego telling us that we further along than we really mm-hmm. are. We are dealing with the masters of destruction mm-hmm. in this country. The masters of destruction, they are weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. and they have inflicted that upon us. Yeah. G2, you hinted at this earlier, but already we are seeing this kind of attempt to erase conversations about race and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea even of race mm-hmm. in media coverage of the election and, mm-hmm. and uh, even this conversation about the Russians and mm-hmm. whether the Russians were responsible. Mm-hmm. There's there's just something that triggers in people that, that really wants, they don't want to talk about race. Um, and so, Albert, how are you really working in your work in Mississippi and with IDEA? How are you working to really make sure that race and the elimination of white supremacy remain at the core of your, your mission and, and the work that you do? So we don't partner with organizations who don't deem themselves as anti-racist and don't see themselves as doing anti-race work. I think uh, one thing we have dedicated ourselves to is not letting the conversation escape the room and not to make it a comfortable conversation. We have to let it be the conversation that it is, which is one that is very uncomfortable to have, depending on which side of it that you're on and really pushing the issue around what work needs to be done where. So we have uh, many situations where white liberals tend up to show up in communities of color and think that that's where that work is, when in actuality, white folks who are truly anti-racist and who are truly progressive thinkers to do their work in their communities with the folks who look like them, that don't believe in being anti-racist and that don't believe in doing the work of racial healing. We definitely partner with folks like the North Dakota Study Group, which had traditionally been a collection of white people who were educators who were coming together to talk about education. And But the thing that was missing in the room was people of color. And mm-hmm. the students that these white people served were mostly children of color across the country. And so idea for the last five years has really been infusing that space with people of color from Mississippi, from other places across the country. We've been bringing in folks from South Texas to represent our Latino and Latina brothers and sisters and really push this conversation around um, the work that white people need to do to clean up the mess that they've been helping make for a few hundred years in this country. And also to support efforts to make sure that the truth is told. So in Texas, you had to say legislature changing the school textbooks to make slavery look like it was this great migration of mm-hmm. Africans who were mm-hmm. coming to America to get jobs. And so we have to continue to push back on the whitewashing of our curriculum, mm-hmm. push back on the whitewashing of our stories. And we have to make sure that while we're doing that, we also taking the necessary time internally in our communities with our children to tell the real story of Christopher Columbus being a drunk white man on a ship that landed in a place that he thought was India. He didn't even know where he was. And we consider him to be our founding father when he rolled up on a piece of land that already belonged to folks who had been here cultivating it for 
several centuries before he ever showed up mm-hmm. on his ship on the wrong route on a dummy mission to prove that the world was, was uh, flat. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it, it's really been super, super intentional and super hardcore about not letting up on this conversation, not letting it become easy, and not letting it be something that we cast to the side until folks are ready to deal with it. So we've been in rooms together where those type of things happen, where race is the kind of thing that we tiptoe around. It's the biggest issue in the room, but it's also the thing that we treat as a small uh, parking lot discussion that we can come back to or that we can throw a few thoughts out and kind of get around it and move mm-hmm. on from it so that white people can feel uh, accomplished in their day for being, you know, sitting in a room with us for seven to eight hours. So, uh, I mean, that's where we are. And then we just adamant about working with folks who, who seriously want to tackle the issue of race across this country, who want to tackle the issue of racism as it exists in our schools, as it exists in our communities, and, and definitely in a place like Jackson, Mississippi, being real real forthright around what systemic racism looks like. Because one of the hardest conversations to have amongst black people in Mississippi is a conversation around race. Mm-hmm. When you live in a that has the most black elected officials. When Jackson is a city that's over 85% black, people don't see racism as something that can, that can be carried out by folks who look like them. Mm-hmm. And so it is about having a conversation of what do racist systems look like and the fact that people that look like you can participate in those systems and carry out uh, the missions and the goals of those systems. And so is when we talk about Black Lives Matter and police brutality. Folks here don't see police brutality as uh, some terrible thing because most of the police they see look like them, so they don't mm-hmm. see it as, as an extension of a racist system. And so we do have to have the internal conversations that help our young people identify what systemic racism looks like and identify what inequality and inequity looks like in different places that we are. And to also work with them to train themselves on how to fight against that, how to combat that, and hopefully how to eradicate that for good in their lifetime. So you both mentioned that, of course, this work is going to have to remain at the local level and go even deeper at the local level in the coming years. And work that's happening in global spaces all over the world, mm-hmm. South Africa, you mm-hmm. mentioned you have a member in South Africa, mm-hmm. G2. So what can people do? And I'm talking about the longtime organizers, mm-hmm. the experts, but I'm also talking about the folks who mm-hmm. were jolted awake in November mm-hmm. with this election. What can they do to continue fighting? I'm reminded of um, the principal, um, Kuja Chagulia, mm-hmm. um, that celebrated during Kwanzaa, self-determination to define name and speak for ourselves instead of being defined name and spoken for by others. Mm-hmm. I'm also reminded by, of a quote from Alice Walker, uh, who wrote The Color Purple, who says, no one is your friend who demands your silence or denies your right to grow. I think all our work must be grounded there. Mm-hmm. First, we have to all realize that the conditions that we see in our communities are have been manufactured based on someone else's view of what we deserve and what we don't. Mm-hmm then I think it's very important that we begin to learn the artistic science of community organizing. It's not just about being an activist. And actually, um, this may be unpopular to say, but I think the promotion of that is exactly what Ella Baker argued against, Mm. right? The promotion of individuals who now don't have to be accountable to a base, can say what they want when they want, Mm -hmm. right? Can be consistent or not be consistent Mm -hmm. is actually like kryptonite to our movement. We need folks Mm -hmm. to understand that 
your contribution is great, whether you're on the mic or whether you're serving the food or whether you're at the registration table or whether you are setting up the chairs for the meeting. All of it Mm -hmm. is important and none is better than the other. We have to begin to envision what we want to see for our communities. One of the weaknesses of our movement, in my humble opinion, is that we are always responding to someone else's vision, Mm -hmm. which means that our oppressor is very visionary. Mm-hmm. We are very reactionary. Mm-hmm. So we're always trying to stop school closings. We're always trying to say to end the school to prison pipeline, mm-hmm. which we have to do. Yeah. But we have to begin to articulate. So in the case of, if I could bring up one situation, Diet High School in Chicago, yeah. that became a national fight. That became a community fight. We beat Rahm Emanuel because it was based on the vision of low-income black mamas and fathers on the south side of Chicago in this this community called Bronzeville. Yeah. And since it was rooted in that, I think I would just tell people, remember that people will fight for what they help to build. And just remind people what the Diet High School fight was about. Yes, ma'am. So we've been dealing with school privatization in the, the Bronzeville community on the south side of Chicago since really 2002, 2003. They've been closing schools since 1998 Mm -hmm. as they started closing many of the housing projects Mm -hmm. inside of the city. But um, a program that had a name to it Mm -hmm. was first called the Mid-South Plan. It was a plan to close 20 out of the 22 schools in my neighborhood. We organized and we beat that plan in 2004. But um, due to just an ongoing assault, we only had one open enrollment neighborhood high school left in our community. This community of 66,000 people. Mm-hmm. And that high school, Walter Diet High School. Walter Diet was called the star maker. Um, he died in 1969. He was a teacher and a, a, a band leader and a, a motivator and a, a labor leader in Chicago. His students included Nat King Cole, mm-hmm. Dinah Washington, Red Fox, mm-hmm. Eddie Harris, the saxophone giant, Gene Ammons. I can go on. He was a brother who had such high standards that some of the world's best musicians emerged from his teachings. Diet High School was built in 1972. As our community began to gentrify, they closed a high school called Martin Luther King and made it a college prep because they wanted to make it attractive to the incoming gentry. Mm-hmm. So they dumped all the children into Diet and they never gave Diet any of the resources it needs to be a successful school. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I joined the local school council at Diet in 2003. Mm-hmm. We endured everything from being a receiving school for another high school to close to just lack of support from the district. But despite that, we were an award-winning school. We had the largest increase of students going to college in the whole city, mm-hmm. largest decrease in arrests and suspensions. 2011, we won the ESPN Rise Up Award. ESPN called Diet a wonderful school that just needs support. Mm-hmm. Our young people went on fire. We had student leaders who were actually organizers. And what ended up happening is they they voted to phase the school out the year after we won the ESPN Rising mm. Award. We fought back against that and we began organizing with parents around what do you want to see at this school? We began organizing with students. What do you want to see? And we eventually came up with a plan for Diet being the hub of a sustainable community school village. Diet and six other neighborhood feeder schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an academic vision and a curriculum for all these schools. And we developed the plan for Walter Diet Global Leadership at Green Technology High School. The school ended up closing. The last class graduated in 2015. Uh, we began to pressure the district even more, began to follow the mayor around, chase him all over the city, mm-hmm. chained ourselves outside of his office 
And these were mothers. These weren't no activists. These, yeah. these were mamas. It was just like, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, my baby's graduating from Mollison. My baby's not going three miles down the road. Mm-hmm. She's going here. resulted in really a citywide show of support. Mm -hmm. Not only had black parents and students that were activated and involved, we had Mexican mothers that brought us brought. uh, Let me step back. So when we wrote our proposal, several independent agencies, the American Education Research Association, the American Federation of Teachers, said it was the best proposal they had ever seen. Mm -hmm. We turned out hundreds of people to town hall meetings. CPS changed the rules and they canceled the hearing. Mm. And when they canceled the last hearing, that's when we had already began anticipating it. So we waged a hunger strike starting on August 27th, 2015, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because it's marked as uh, August 17th, I'm sorry, 2015, which is interesting because that's Marcus Garvey's birthday. Mm-hmm. On mm-hmm. the first day of the hunger strike, we had set up tents outside of Operation Push or Jesse Jackson's outfit. Now, we, people have their opinions of Reverend Jackson, but we went to just about every church in that community mm-hmm. that was would have been a good visible place. And they all said no, because they did not want to fight the mayor. Reverend Jackson welcomed us. We slept at Operation Push every night. Mm -hmm. And on the first day of the hunger strike, Marcus Garvey's birthday, Mm -hmm. uh, we set up tents and it was a windstorm and it blew our tents away. Mm -hmm. And Marcus Garvey said, look for me in the whirlwind, look for me in the storm, (laughs) look for me all around because my spirit will bring freedom to form. And we waged a 34 day hunger strike. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we won because Diet was reopened as an open enrollment neighborhood school mm-hmm. this year with $16 million in new investments mm-hmm. for neighborhood children. And uh, we are welcomed in the school. Diet will be a community school starting next year. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a huge fight. Mm-hmm. You know, there was some you know physical casualties in that fight. It was mm-hmm. not easy. It's mm-hmm. not. Uh, and, and the fact that we had to go to those lengths to me is an indictment on our society. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we were willing to go those lengths yeah. is also, uh, to me, a sign of, of great hope. Mm-hmm. So I think those types of fights, those types of efforts are important, as mm-hmm. I said earlier, to begin to share with other communities so that people know that you can win. Mm-hmm. You can win, yeah. right? Yeah. But just because they say it don't mean that's what it got to be. Mm-hmm. I have a belief, just based on our history, when we stump, mm-hmm. the world shakes. Mm-hmm. People still get emotional thinking about Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. That brother been dead since 1965. Yeah. When we stump, the world shakes. Yeah. And but we have to learn to stump. We, we've been taught to tiptoe. Mm. So I'm a firm believer in that because um, I've seen, just in my limited experience, warrior women, mm. warrior men. Mm. I mean, folks who did not get a salary, folks that was just like, this is wrong and I'm, I'm going to fight against mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, I got a sister has 16 grandchildren to go to Chicago public schools in early stages of congestive heart failure. She had no business being on the hunger strike. When we tried to move her off the hunger strike, she grabbed me and she cried so ferociously and said, if you take me off this hunger strike, I will never forgive you. Mm-hmm. That woman is a giant. Mm-hmm. She's a giant. Her name is Irene Robinson mm-hmm. and she's on her way to Memphis uh, tomorrow. She'll be there Wednesday 
to testify at the NAACP hearing about the moratorium on charter schools. So I think, you know, just simply we have to begin to learn to organize in our communities based on our perspective. And don't think that we have to climb the mountain first. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, if it's about winning a parent room, if it's about resources for your block club, if it's about getting a fire truck to come on your block during your block Mm -hmm. club meeting, Mm -hmm. learning how to do those things. We have to learn how to control our communities. And if folks, you know, need support, not saying we have all the answers because we don't, we make mistakes, but the Journey for Justice Alliance, we have a very strong cadre of seasoned organizers that have won important victories. Mm -hmm. And we are a resource to any brother or sister within earshot of my voice that's interested in making change in their communities. Mm-hmm. You call us, you say you need us, we coming. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If I don't, you let Allison know. That's right. And, and you know, <laughs> call me on the car. So, yes, and Albert, what about you? What are you telling people about what they can do, whether they are, they are longtime folks in the movement or, or new? I mean, so for one, to look around and see good work and become a part of it. So I think, Jumping in and supporting campaigns that's developed by Journal for Justice. We got the advancement project that's pushing real hard every day. They folks that we should be looking at and communicating with. We have the Alliance for Educational Justice. So those folks been doing great work across the Northeast for a long time and they stretching their roots across the country and getting deeper into the fight around education and, and Definitely working against the expansion of charter schools and other things across the country. Uh, you got the Center for Social Inclusion, who does a lot of uh, research around the impact of policy and communities of color across the country. The Shot Foundation with the Opportunity to Learn campaign. Then they also had a 50-state report on the state of education. And you can see the real numbers on what's happening to black and brown children in schools across the country. I think, and then you also look at the examples that's being set by folks like Jitsu and the community organizers in Chicago and figure out how with more frequency and more intensity do we continue or start to put our bodies on the line. So you just heard about folks who went through a hunger strike. You heard about them chaining themselves together outside of the, the mayor's office. And we have to increase those actions and uh, let those actions continue to bring attention to the issues that we're trying to raise. So it's good that the NAACP put out a call for a national moratorium on charter schools, but it's also great to know that that's an extension of work that Journey for Justice, Alliance for Educational Justice, the communities in Chicago and Detroit and Philadelphia and New York and other places have been pushing for a long time. And then they're going to continue to push, even when it's not something that's a national news story, that the local organizing is going to continue to happen. And so we definitely need to look around the country and find good work and become a part of it and figure out ways to support it. Also, we need to really be intentional about loving ourselves and loving our people and loving the communities that we come from. I think we just saw in November that, that it, it was at least 60 million plus people who, who didn't think that we had value and who don't think that our communities deserve love. And so we have to reinforce the best of us in front of ourselves and really be in the mode to protect ourselves and protect each other with way more intensity than we probably thought we would have to. But, you know, there's so much to do. There's so many conversations to have. There's so many actions to take. There's so much work to continue to be done around building 
strong coalition of folks that are ready to work together, ready to push together, ready to sacrifice uh, themselves, and ready to sacrifice their reputation, and, and in a lot of cases, their salary and other things to achieve the ultimate goal of making sure that this country becomes a place where when we look at the Constitution and it says we, the people, then we no longer have any question who that is. And so that's been a thing that we've been struggling with since the inception of this country. And hopefully by folks joining in to work that's happening and starting necessary working in places that they are, that we'll find ourselves knowing the answer to the question of who is we the people. And so... I think those are a few of the things that I think we can do. And uh, idea, we'll continue to, to get up every day and deal with folks. And for people who want to know what we're doing, you can visit our website at www.democraticeducation.org. You can look on there if there's any courses or any opportunities for us to do work together or exchange ideas or share resources. You can email any of the staff members that's listed on the site. And let's put our heads and our hands and our hearts together and get some work done. Because this ain't about uh, just the next four years. It's also about the 400 years that preceded uh, us getting to the point that we are now. And it's about the 400 years that's ahead of us and what we want this country to be and look like for the duration of time. Thank you, Albert. And G2, how can folks find you and Journey for Justice online if they're looking for you? Yes, ma'am. They can reach us at 773-548-7500. Uh, and you can go to www.j, the number four, jalliance.com. Can I mention one more thing? Of course. So we brought in over 100 victims of Betsy DeVos's policies from Michigan. We made sure that the voices of these families were heard at the uh, Senate confirmation hearings. For uh, Betsy DeVos's education secretary, our main concern was and is that a person who uh, is a lobbyist who has bankrolled the destruction of public education in Detroit and who has arguably the worst charter schools in the country is being given the keys to public education throughout the United States and will impact primarily children that look like us, black and brown children. That's unacceptable to us. So our folks definitely mobilized, uh, had several media appearances so the voices of our families from Detroit were heard people should just you know stay tuned to the hashtag it's trended several times on Twitter hashtag dump devos and I think that the good thing about this is that we actually partnered with the leadership committee for civil rights on the press event we did on Wednesday and it's opening the door for a new redefined relationship between grassroots community organizations civil rights groups. So we're excited about that because, again, we're going to need each other in this fight. Hashtag Dump DeVos, www.jforjalliance.com. Thank you both. Thank you, family. Yes, ma'am. D2 Brown is the National Director of Journey for Justice Alliance, and Albert Sykes is the Executive Director of IDEA, the Institute for Democratic Education in America. Thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse. Thank you, cuz. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Mm-hmm.